and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with encouraging signs that a solid majority of the American electorate is motivated to vote to protect reproductive rights the Supreme Court took away. At the same time, the public is not getting behind Governor DeSantis' racist refrain of fighting wokeness and the politics of hate and cruelty. Joining us to discuss a more optimistic landscape ahead for 2024 is Richard Parker, who teaches economics and public policy at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government and is a senior fellow at the Shorenstein Center. He is a former managing editor of Ramparts, was a co-founder of Mother Jones magazine, and serves on the editorial board of the nation. His books include The Myth of the Middle Class and John Kenneth Galbraith, His Life, His Politics, His Economics. Then we look into the prisoner swap with Iran and the release of $6 billion of Iran's frozen funds from oil sales to South Korea that will be dispersed through the Qatar Central Bank to make sure it is spent on humanitarian needs. Joining us is Nada Hashemi, Director of the Alawid Center for Muslim Christian Understanding and is an Associate Professor of Middle East Politics at the Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. He's the author of The People Reloaded, The Green Movement and the Struggle for Iran's Future. And his latest book is Sectarianization, Mapping the New Politics of the Middle East. Then finally, we will examine the assassination of a presidential candidate in Ecuador who campaigned against corruption and drug cartels and was a fierce critic of the former Correa government, whose candidate has yet to suspend her presidential campaign, as others have done. Joining us is Amy Lind, the Mary Ellen Heinz Professor of Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies, who is currently serving as the University of Cincinnati's Taft Research Center Director and Faculty Chair. Dr. Lind has lived, worked, and conducted research in Ecuador for over four years, and is the author of Gendered Paradoxes, Women's Movements, State Reconstructing, and Global Development in Ecuador. And her new book is Constituting the Left Turn, Resignifying Nation, Economy and Family in Post-Neoliberal Ecuador. And joining us now is Richard Parker, who teaches economics and public policy at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government and is a senior fellow at the Shorenstein Center. He was a former managing editor of Ramparts, was co-founder of Mother Jones magazine and serves on the editorial board of The Nation. His books include The Myth of the Middle Class and John Kenneth Galbraith, His Life, His Politics, His Economics. Welcome to Background Briefing, Richard Parker. I'm delighted to be back with you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Richard, and I'd like to talk to you because you usually are somewhat optimistic in, in spite of the looming dark clouds of American fascism brought on by the orange duce, uh, Ronald, hmm. uh, none other than, than the other Donald one. Trump, who, right. who steals everybody's attention. And, you know, I, I feel like I'm delivering the daily dose of doom just talking about this guy who just won't get right. a, won't go away. And if you consider in this life there are two kinds of people, those that demand attention and those that deserve attention, the, right. those that demand attention are both terrorists and Donald Trump. And right. it's depressing not to be talking about people who, you know, earn attention and deserve attention. Right. So, right. how are we are we ever going to get out of that trap and find I, a way not to be whipsawed and manipulated by this tawdry, disgraceful person? Well, you know, and I mean, the the gift in my life is that I was raised in a family that has deep roots in American history, and. 
I've had to think a lot as a teacher over the last 30 years about how to talk to young people. And it's really so important to try to introduce a historic dimension into the way we talk about America and the possibilities of what America could be. And whether or not we should give up on the project itself. And I'm not one for giving up on the project at this point. I don't think that the other global power sources right now are those that we want to surrender to. And and I, I just... I am unwilling, uh, you know, I'm immovable on, I don't want to call it optimism. I want to call it a kind of realism that suggests that, you know, Martin Luther King was right, that the arc of the moral universe does bend toward justice, even if it seems at times that it is not. I mean, I've just finished a remarkable book by David Hackett Fisher, who wrote a brilliant book 30 years ago called Albion Seed that traced a lot of what are today's arguments back to the colonial period and the people who came from different parts of Europe, in particular from Great Britain, and the ways in which those arguments from the 1600s and the 1700s continue to act out in the regions and the the politics of regions and people in America. And so when I try to place that history in front of students, I find two things, one of which is Too many young people lack a sense of the long history of America or the long history of the project of human beings for several thousand years before America of trying to bend human reality toward justice. And yet I do think that, you know, we have made what I can only count as progress. I don't know if that makes me a Whig by definition or even whether some of your younger audience understands what I mean when I say Whig. But I try to think about the world I grew up in in the mid-20th century of America, which was haunted by the specter of Joseph McCarthy and the ways in which Joseph McCarthy traumatized an America that had, under Franklin Roosevelt, gained a collective sense that America was moving towards something better. I mean, we had defeated fascists who were real fascists in the original sense of the word. And when we talk about fascism today, it's a derivative culture that uh, builds off of those instincts that fed fascism 75 years ago, but that aren't yet as powerful as those forces were. And I don't think will become uh, as powerful as those forces were, because I don't, don't think that the class and cultural configurations of America are inclined to let that happen. I think Two, that it's really important to talk about the role that the media, the press, uh, first of all, and I mean by that the mainstream press, but I also mean the press on both sides of the political spectrum in the United States and the disservice that the media have played in amplifying the extremism in America for the purposes of amplifying audiences for the media. Um, I don't know if that's too circumlocutory in terms of answering your original question, but it is that I think that there are plenty of reasons now for feeling optimism, not pessimism about where we could go, but that it requires both a will and a determination to focus on the possibilities for the good rather than the, uh, than the evil, which is so present in our world. 
Well, I think which can be encouraged by the Tuesday's vote in Ohio, um, where a really naked can. reactionary power grab and an, an effort to do an end run around an, an, an anti-abortion um, a, 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 a amendment, an, yeah. a, amendment over, an amendment over over abortion rights, uh, which was bound to pass in November, they, the Republican gerrymandered supermajority there tried to uh, come up with this tawdry effort uh, which that was right. soundly rejected by young uh, Democrats Democrats across the board yep. independents and Republicans so mm -hmm. do you think that uh, I mean do you think at some point the electorate particularly on the left is going to just get over the fact that they're not thrilled with Joe Biden and he, they, th they think he's too old and start getting behind him because uh, the other the the <laughs> the choices on the other side are the horror of Trump and 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 uh, and the horror of, uh, of of this little sort of mini me of his, uh, Ron DeSantis, um, right. who recently right. said that uh, he he wanted to slit the throats of government bureaucrats. Have you ever heard sure. anything like that in the American political discourse? Well, look, I mean. I I, th I think several things, one of which is I think that if you look at polling of the American people as, as a whole and you count up the relative progressivism of the American people, it's pretty steadfast. I mean, I don't think there's been a period in the last 40 or 50 years where a majority of Americans have said that they want to tighten restrictions on abortion. There are people who are concerned about an outright unlimited right to abortion under any circumstances, if it were a preference, no different from, you know, Coke versus Pepsi. But that isn't really the question. I mean, I think that we have lots of evidence across a variety of issues that tell us that we're making progress. Think about the attitude toward homosexuality in the 1960s or 70s, where either it was an unspeakable sin or it was to be uh, contained at the, the very edges by not allowing gays to be teachers, by not allowing gays to be religious leaders, by not electing gays, et cetera, et cetera. And here we have a world in which, although there are pressures to roll back uh, rights that uh, uh, LGBT community has won, on balance, we're in a much different place in the United States today. We have you know, openly gay members of Biden's cabinet. We have openly uh, gay uh, and lesbian members of uh, legislatures and uh, uh, public offices uh, across the United States. That doesn't mean that we are uniformly 100 percent pro-gay. It doesn't mean that we're 100 percent pro-women. But again, when I sort of think about the composition of Congress in 1960 and its dominance by white males almost exclusively, and I look at the composition of the Congress today, those are entirely different worlds. And the composition is moving in our direction, not in the direction of reactionaries like Trump or DeSantis or the like. Now, there are differences region by region in the United States, but one of the things that history reminds me is that a lot of those patterns are recurring. I, for example, um, invited my students to look at the electoral votes that Trump won in 2020 when he lost to Joe Biden. And when I counted up 
the majority of the electoral votes won by uh, Donald Trump come from states that were slave-owning states in 1860. Um, what I'm trying to make as a point is that there are patterns in American history that presume to explain a lot of continuity that we should ex- we should expect in cultures that have different strong regional variations, but that it hasn't been the case that uh, slavery or the enslavement of Americans has made any progress toward its recreation in America that I think that we're making enormous strides in combating racism in all forms, even if we aren't at a place where we want it to be uh, in the best of all possible worlds. But the vector, it seems to me, is pretty conclusively in the direction that, that Reverend King talked about, which is that we are bending that arc toward greater justice. Now, at the same time, you were raising a point just before we went on the air about the absence of a central concern for human rights. And I'm concerned about that as much as you are. But I also think that it doesn't mean that we have lost attention to issues of fundamental human rights. That's what these battles are right now. And we weren't ever going to be given freedom or equality as a gift by a society that was part of a long human history that has uh, repressed equality and repressed freedom from the top for hundreds, if not thousands of years. I mean, it's really important to remember that things, institutions like slavery were definitionally what human societies were about around the globe for several thousand years. It's only in the last few hundred years that we have moved to a state where we talk about enslavement of other human beings as the exception rather than the rule. So once again, I, I want to sort of introduce this longer view of human history, American history, but also human history that says, where do we stand today versus where we were 50 years ago or 500 years ago or 5,000 years ago? And I think it's really, really hard to fall into a position that justifies uh, pessimism and negation rather than combat and courage. Well, again, going back to Tuesday's vote in Ohio, uh, it is extremely encouraging to think that the uh, so many people, not just Democrats, but Republicans and Independents, are mobilizing around reproductive rights. Um, mm-hmm. And that is on the ascendancy, whereas the... the uh, campaign of DeSantis, uh, this anti-wokeism, is not right. showing any traction. It's fading. I mean, it's obviously a racist dog whistle at any rate. So uh, I, I, that's what I th- think is really incredibly encouraging. That No, that, uh, you, you and I are in absolute agreement on this. And again, it comes back to this sense of, I don't think of myself as an optimist. I think of myself as a realist trying to examine the human hunger for uh, greater equality and greater liberty for all of us. And the fact that we face setbacks, the fact that there is resistance by itself is entirely realistically predictable, but it doesn't determine our future. It is a story about our past and not the future that is there as the possibility for us if we are willing to continue leaning toward that future. So do you think then, just to 
touch on a couple of the events today. Donald Trump and well, now to plead not guilty to these extra charges down in the documents case in in Florida, uh, and also today Jack Smith, the special counsel, uh, recommended to the federal court in Washington D.C. that Trump face trial in the election case, uh, the the January sixth election case on the second of January, which is obviously a lot sooner than the judge down in in Florida um, wants to try him on the documents case. So, mm-hmm. and then, of course, sometime next week, we're going to be hearing probably from the Atlanta DA that she's indicting Trump for what we all heard him asking for 11,780 extra votes. Um, right. So how do you think that all of this is going to play out? Uh, and actually, there's also a possibility that the judge down in Florida who's clearly friendly to Trump uh, right. and has showed great deference to him in the past, she might actually right. have to be recused. So right. ha- just a well, quick so, comment I mean, on, again, on the, yeah, the so my, 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 yeah, my, my quick comment is what it has been since the fiasco with, with Mr. Mueller, which is that um, we're not going to settle this question of Donald Trump's future relationship to the rest of us through these lawsuits. We're going to settle it electorally. We have to settle it electorally. Then it has to be done by a majority of Americans electorally choosing to reject what Trump is and what Trump represents. And I I, I do think that we have reasons for being hopeful that that is going to happen. Um, I, I think that to rely on the courts in this case is to put our attention in the wrong place. We've seen him fend off through technicalities of one kind or another several of these uh, assaults. I mean, the, the the Stormy Daniels case, for example, ended up with her uh, essentially losing the case against him initially and being uh, uh, burdened with huge amount of court costs and legal costs as a consequence. And we saw the Mueller uh, investigation come up with conclusions that Mueller then re-summarized and essentially whitewashed in his presentation in such a way that nothing has come of that. And what, what I keep wanting to emphasize is we will have a, a healthy democracy when we as democratic citizens act through the electoral process to create the conditions for that health. And I think that there are now more and more Americans fully aware that being indifferent to this, uh, of trying to stand away from this debate going on, uh, will produce disaster. And I don't think that the country is ready to let that happen. I mean, I think that we saw in 2022 that while the Republicans were able to gain control of the House, in, in large measure through carelessness on the part of Democrats in New York and California, where there were there were uh, wins that they should have had, this terrible win by the the pathological liar, this, uh, what is it, Santos, uh, was a case of absolute carelessness since he won in a district that should have been a Democratic district. And the same thing happened in a couple of districts out there in California. And I, what, what we understand is that both Republican operatives and donors, like Democratic operatives and donors, understand that what small majority they have in the House, which is 
uh, was a far smaller gain than is normally the case for the opposition party in the first off-cycle election after a president is elected, um, really is a, a measure of the weakness of the case that, that Trump is making. I mean, the gains that Trump made dramatically were in those districts where he had won. I mean, there were some uh, some gains, but they weren't enough to overturn lots of districts where uh, representatives had won, where Biden had carried the, the district. And I think that, once again, I want to emphasize the centrality of next November, uh, not of November 23, but of November 24 to this whole process and to urge your listeners and to urge everyone to pay attention to the work that it's going to take to win in November 2024, win not just the White House, but win a majority of control over the Senate and the House in such a way that we can move things forward dramatically for a change. Relying on the court system is not where to place our energies. And right now, I mean, in effect, we can all be voyeuristic uh, watchers of how these various court cases play out, but they aren't themselves subject to small d democratic response. And I think that where we want to be putting our energy and our focus is in that election upcoming uh, and not just into uh, the election for who will occupy the White House in 2025 and beyond, but how it is that the, that, the, that the White House and the Congress together can be made uniformly democratic with margins large enough to really make a difference. Um, and, I, and I think that we are in a position to do that. Um, you know, if we lose, it's going to be we who bear the responsibility for not turning out the majority of Americans who feel as we do. Well, Richard Parker, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Ian, it's always good to talk with you. And if I sound a little uh, impassioned, I am impassioned about this. This is an opportunity that comes around once in a, a lifetime. And I am a child of the 1960s. And I think that the 2020s are as important as the 1960s were for American history. And when I look back on what it was that were the forces that were unleashed by the 1960s, I think that those forces are still fundamentally regnant in the minds and the hearts of most Americans, even if they have not been in the actions and the representation that a flawed electoral system has so far given us. Well, again, I've been speaking with Richard Parker, who teaches economics and public policy at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government and is a senior fellow at the Shorenstein Center. He's the former managing editor of Ramparts and the co-founder of Mother Jones magazine and serves on the editorial board of The Nation. And his books include The Myth of the Middle Class and John Kenneth Galbraith, His Life, His Politics, His Economics. We're going to take a restation break and back looking to the prisoner swap with Iran and the release of $6 billion of Iran's frozen funds from oil sales to South Korea that will be dispersed through the Qatar Central Bank to make sure it is spent on humanitarian needs.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, Nada Hashemi, who is the director of the Alawid Center for Muslim-Christian Understanding and a professor of Middle East politics at the Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. He's the author of The People Reloaded, The Green Movement and the Struggle for Iran's Future. And his latest book is Sectarianization, Mapping the New Politics of the Middle East. Welcome to Background Briefing, Nada Hashemi. Thanks, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And what do you make of this uh, release of prisoners uh, in uh, in Iran in exchange for $6 billion uh, that was uh, f- frozen in South Korea? Apparently, it's going to be transferred to the Bank of uh, Qatar uh, and, and fed back to Iran in the form of of humanitarian aid, so to avoid the possibility that any frozen money is, is ends up buying weapons or is used on, for military purposes, I pr- I assume that the Republicans are still going to go to town on Biden. Right, the idea that you release five people for six billion dollars—that's over a billion dollars a head. Correct. Uh, that's a good summary of what's going on, and the Republicans will go ballistic. Um, um, and attack Biden vociferously on this topic. Um, My immediate reaction is that I think it's obviously good news for the prisoners, the five dual Americans who've been held um, for many years on completely bogus charges, effectively as hostages and bargaining chips so that Iran can get concessions from the West. So it's good news for them, obviously. Um, It's good news for their families. It's important to emphasize that these prisoners uh, are not free yet. There's still um, a lot of details that have been that need to be worked out, but they have been removed from Iran's notorious Evin prison, put in a um, um, under house arrest, and it looks like that uh, they might be released within the next several weeks. So that's the good news. Um, uh, the bad news, of course, is that this type of behavior incentivizes the Islamic Republic to continue its longstanding policy of hostage taking, effectively arresting innocent Iranians who go back home to visit their families and then use them as bargaining chips to get political concessions from the United States, from the West. Uh, and we've seen this pattern taking taking place uh, continuously. And of course, it raises a lot of moral dilemmas. If, if these types of negotiations don't take place, then effectively we're condemning these innocent people uh, to jail in Iran for um, uh, forever. Um, And so that's one moral sort of concern. Uh, But the other concern is that uh, the one that I just mentioned, by engaging in this type of hostage diplomacy, we simply incentivize the Islamic Republic and other authoritarian regimes. Um, Russia has done this. China has done this to engage in this type of hostage diplomacy. And it sets a very bad precedent. But what can be done? Does the State Department warn Iranian Americans not to return to Iran to visit their relatives? That warning is always there. Um, Iranians go at their own risk. I know many Iranians now precisely because of, you know, what's happened to people like uh, Siamak Namazi and Imad Shari. Um, those are the two, two, two of the five who are, you know, currently in jail in Iran. Um, uh, Iranians now have cut back on trips uh, to the Islamic Republic of Iran, precisely fearing the same fate. So, you know, the State Department in the United States can't do much except warn dual nationals that this could be your fate. You have to travel there on your own risk. And so I think Iranians um, 
are aware of that risk. I think many of them have cut back travel, but there's still, um, you know, uh, hundreds of thousands of Iranians who travel uh, to Iran for mostly personal reasons on a regular basis. And they do run the risk of being, you know, taken hostage at any moment. So there's no way that the U.S. government can say you're on your own if you go back to Iran? I think they effectively do say that. Um, and when something like this happens, then the United States government, you know, um, um, uh, you know, is, gets involved. Um, they just because they've warned Iranian citizens doesn't mean they've warned American citizens with dual nationals that this might be your fate doesn't mean that the United States has no longer a moral obligation to f to free their citizens from prison. Then it becomes a question of family members trying to raise this issue of hostage taking in the uh, court of public opinion, getting uh, intellectuals and personalities and congressmen and women involved to raise uh, the topic. And it puts pressure, you know, in a democracy on the sitting government to try and um, secure a release. But um, as we've seen in many of these cases, it takes um, many years to get people out of Iran. And it's often very difficult and sensitive negotiations that have no guarantee that they'll be successful. So that's how these things play out. And um, I think it just highlights, in my view, the very sinister nature of the Islamic Republic that has been doing this really for 44 years, uh, arresting innocent people um, who have done nothing wrong and then use them as bargaining chips to advance the regime's foreign policy agenda. So let's talk about the escalation of, of tensions between Iran and the United States at a military level, particularly over the Straits of Hormuz. The U.S. is deploying the, these latest F-35 fighters along with F-16s and a destroyer and a, a landing carrier, the USS Bataan. And it's, they're even talking about deploying U.S. soldiers aboard commercial ships because the Iranian Revolutionary Guards Corps in these small speedboats have been shooting up neutral flag ships going through and trying to seize them. So let's start with the question of why is Iran doing this? Well, Iran's uh, position and justification for um, attacking international shipping in international waters in the Persian Gulf, it justifies this internally um, by arguing that we are under siege by the United States. Um, the United States is poking its nose in our neighborhood. They draw an analogy of um, uh, comparing what the United States is doing in the Persian Gulf to a hypothetical situation where Iran uh, would send its navy and its um, um, flotilla of ships to the Gulf of Mexico and uh, try to patrol waters on the outskirts of the United States. Uh, invoking the argument that this is um, a thuggish behavior by a superpower that's trying to bully us. And as a weaker power, Iran engages in a policy of asymmetric warfare. It doesn't have the military might to compete with the United States, but it engages in these types of, you know, um, tank uh, um, threatening ships uh, to send a message to the United States that if they're going to put the squeeze on Iran, Iran has a way of pushing back of um, threatening shipping in international waters, of um, not sitting back and taking things lightly. So that's basically, I think, how Iran justifies what's going on. Uh, what you described is completely accurate. It does 
signify a ratcheting up of tensions. And of course, the big fear here is all you need is one miscommunication, one incident um, where someone um, fires a shot that can then quickly escalate into a broader regional war. So in terms of the prisoner swap, the Iranians are also getting a bunch of prisoners back. And these are people that have been accused of arms dealing and sanctions, violating sanctions. But are they also going to return the IRGC operatives that were caught trying to kill a prominent Iranian-American woman activist in Brooklyn? And they, you know, they literally came ashore by boat. Right. It, it was it was a clumsy operation, but a pretty brazen one. Right. That person has been um, arrested. Uh, he was like, it sounds like he was a contractor mm -hmm. who um, was paid by the Islamic Republic to intimidate um, the Iranian dissident that you mentioned. And the recent news is that he has been uh, put on trial and I think he's given a sen sentence um, for um, his uh, attempt to intimidate this Iranian dissident in Brooklyn. Um, but I'm glad you raised the issue of this so-called prisoner swap because the Islamic Republic of Iran is trying to present a, uh, a propaganda narrative where there's essentially a quid pro quo taking place where Iran is going to let go some of its prisoners and the United States is going to let go some of its prisoners, uh, um, claiming the Islamic Republic of Iran, claiming some sort of moral parity here when there's no parity at all. The um, Iranians who are in American jails are there because they violated existing US sanction law. They've had lawyers, they've had a court hearing, they had the right to appeal, they're serving a sentence. Um, those Iranian Americans who are in Iran today are innocent people, they've committed no crime. They've, they've, they've just been arrested as bargaining chips, effectively as hostages. Um, and the, the question is, well, why does Iran sort of, you know, you know insist on doing this type of prisoner swap? Um, and the reason is, I think, simply for internal propaganda purposes. Uh, the Iranians that have been arrested on, on, on sanctions violations and who are currently in um, American prisons, most of them are dual citizens. And most of them don't want to go back to Iran. They have no interest in – they're not Iranian agents. They were involved in illegal activity. But um, we know from the details of these types of negotiations, and I'm referring specifically to the details of uh, what happened in 2016 when there was a, another prisoner swap. Um, and one of the people who were swapped at the time was the Washington Post correspondent Jason Rezaian. He has put together recently this podcast called 544 Days, where the details of the negotiations that led to his release were sort of revealed. And if you listen to the podcast, long story short, um, um, he talks about how the negotiations almost broke down when the Iranian side said that, look, we just can't let go of our hostages. We want to uh, uh, insist upon, um, for our own internal reasons, uh, in the United States letting go uh, of some Iranians that are in American jail so that we can claim that we've sort of, you know, um, we've engaged in this some sort of a, a bargain that amounts to basically a, f a fair swap of prisoners. But of course, as I said, there's no parity here. These are completely different cases. Um, but in, in order for the Islamic Republic and its hardliners to show that they are sort of uh, standing up to the great American Satan, they are going to use the release of these people who are in American jails as uh, a propaganda narrative to say that, look, 
look, we've actually done something for our own citizens when really they don't care very much about those people and their welfare. This is all for for you know internal public relations uh, reasons that the Islamic Republic is is engaging in that type of negotiation. So is that to say then, Nada Hashimi, that the the mullahs running the show through the Revolutionary Guards and the Pastoran and the, and and the morality police, by the way, for all of the sacrifice and the bravery of the Iranian women women who took to the streets and demonstrated and were shot down, the 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 morality police are back, aren't they? So, do they really need to whip up their people, the ones that they whip up on the Friday prayers with the great Satan and all that stuff, a refrain that has to be getting pretty tired. My sense is that the, most of the countries, at least the urban and educated people, are just seething under their breath that they just despise this regime. They're essentially a bunch of crooks dressed in clerical robes. That's correct, Ian. Um, this is a regime that is 44 years old. It's internal political legitimacy has never been weaker, but there is a certain worldview and an ideological narrative that unites the supporters of the Islamic Republic of Iran together. One of those themes is anti-Americanism, um, um, rejection of American foreign policy. Uh, and so that explains, I think, this hostage negotiation and why these um, things are happening along the lines that I just described. And the second point um, that is a key pillar of the Islamic Republic of Iran's narrative is um, um, the control of women's presence in public spaces. Uh, and that's a red line for the regime, which is why they have recently, as you correctly pointed out, stepped up enforcement of um, their draconian hijab law. Uh, we're approaching the one-year anniversary of the protests that were marked by the you know, death of this 22-year-old year young woman, Masa Jina Amini, and the regime is panicking. Um, all the reports that we're getting in Iran right now is that many women have, uh, over the last less than about 11 months, have taken advantage of the protests and now walk around Tehran without the hijab law, and the regime can't enforce it because there's just too many women and they don't have the military and security apparatus to uh, you know, force the hijab on every woman's head. And so this is a regime that I think is many ways living on borrowed time. Um, it took a big hit over the last year with the repression. Um, but as we know from revolutions and from political change, no one knows when a revolution will take place, um, when a uh, repressive regime will fall. Uh, I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon in Iran. I think the regime still is very powerful. Um, uh, uh, one Iran analyst drew a comparison to the Soviet Union in the 1980s um, and contemporary Iran, but the early 1980s. The comparison was that, the, that Iran is sort of in the same position that the Soviet Union was in the early 1980s. A strong, internally repressive regime, but internally morally bankrupt, economically bankrupt, not having the support of his people. And it took another 10 years before that system in the Soviet Union collapsed. I suspect, you know, Iran is headed down a very similar path. But in the last couple of minutes, so now that could could the death of the supreme leader Khamenei make would that be an opportunity for some kind of counter revolution against the regime, particularly if his if Khamenei's son makes a, a move to become the new uh, supreme leader? He doesn't have the religious credentials. Not that Khamenei has the religious credentials in in the first place. Is there something going on there? 
Oh, absolutely. I think that's going to be a big moment of crisis for the Islamic Republic of Iran. The passing of the supreme leader, who's the most powerful person in the country, controls all of the major institutions of the state. When he passes from the scene, it's going to be an open question who replaces him. And if it's going to be his son, that's going to be deeply embarrassing for the Islamic Republic because because that will confirm that effectively this is a a country that's um, a hereditary monarchy that passes on sort of uh, political power from father to son. Um, and, you know, the Islamic Republic was predicated on a rejection of monarchy and and the, the the policies of the Shah of Iran. So I think that is something to watch for, Ian, when the supreme leader passes and he's going to pass within the next five to 10 years. That's going to be um, a moment of uncertainty. And it might create, as your question pointed out, some political opportunity spaces for um, Iranian citizens to mobilize and to, and to fight for a better future. But meanwhile, Hamani's son owns one of the major banks. I mean, it just shows you what a bunch of crooks they are. I believe that a lot of uh, citizen, uh, Iranian citizens have been boycotting that bank. Is there, is there any, is that a way to, uh, how do you expose the, the kleptocracy, the, the clerical kleptocracy? Well, you need investigative journalists, you need good reporting. It's widely known that the Supreme Leader and his son and his family are monumentally corrupt. They have their hands uh, and access to billions of dollars of resources. Um, So that's not uh, a secret. I think most people um, um, in Iran are aware, which is why, you know, people don't trust the official news agencies and and state television. Everyone relies on, you know, the BBC and on uh, foreign news sources. Um, I don't think it's a question really of exposing the corruption um, of this regime because most Iranian citizens are aware of it. It's really a question of, you know, um, I think organizing a sufficient and efficient opposition internally to Iran, which is very difficult to do given the repressive context. Um, It's also, I think, um, imperative that democratic transitions are very difficult to take place and be successful when there is the threat of foreign war Um, when people are starving, when there is mass misery. And I think that is, I think, one of the missing links. I think the policy of comprehensive sanctions on Iran has really created mass misery among the average citizens in Iran, making life, day-to-day life, really struggles for survival and not allowing for the opportunity for people to organize and resist. And I think this is you know, something that needs to, to, to change if the United States in particular really wants to play a a constructive role in promoting sure. um, democracy in Iran. But just a quick question here in the end. The JCPOA, the, the Iran nuclear deal, the Iran nuclear deal has been stalled because the Biden administration's Iran envoy, Rob Malley, he's been on unpaid leave since last June because of, they pulled his security clearance. Do, do you know what happened there? It's a big mystery. Um, No one knows the reason. It's quite shocking because Rob Malley has a very distinguished career in the U.S. State Department. So we don't know what the details are. Rob Malley did have a lot of enemies, particularly people who have opposed the Iran nuclear deal. They have been gunning for him for a very long time. Um, So I wouldn't be surprised if any of those um, elements Uh, who uh, hate Rob Malley and hate the role that he's played in diplomacy have somehow, you know, um, tried to tarnish his reputation and um, contributed to his um, his um, um, uh, removal from the position that he held. So we have to see. We don't know actually what's going on. It obviously is a setback for uh, the cause of diplomacy. Uh, 
But I think the problems with respect to Iran, um, U.S. diplomacy go beyond the figure of Mali. Mali was really implementing policy. Um, really, there are outstanding differences between the two sides that yet have yet to be resolved. And it's an open question whether they, whether they will be resolved while, while President Biden is still in power. Well, I thank you very much for joining us here today, Nada Hashemi. Thanks, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Nada Hashemi, who's the director of the Alawid Center for Muslim Christian Understanding and an associate professor of Middle East politics at the Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. He's the author of The People Reloaded, The Green Movement and the Struggle for Iran's Future, and his latest book is Sectarianization, Mapping the New Politics of the Middle East. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining the assassination of a presidential candidate in Ecuador who campaigned against corruption and drug cartels and was a fierce critic of the former Correa government. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Amy Lind, who's the Mary Ellen Hines Professor of Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies, and is currently serving as the University of Cincinnati's Taft Research Center Director and Faculty Chair. Dr. Lynn has lived, worked, and conducted research in Latin America for over four years, including in Ecuador, Peru, Bolivia, and Venezuela. She's the author of Gendered Paradoxes, Women's Movements, State Reconstructing, and Global Development in Ecuador. And her new book is Constituting the Left Turn, Resignificating Nation, Economy, and Family in Post-Neoliberal Ecuador which addresses the cultural, economic, and effective politics of Ecuador's post-liberal citizens' revolution, post-neoliberal citizens' revolution. Welcome to Background Briefing, Amy Lind. Thank you. So, Amy, I take it you, along with most people, and particularly those who know Ecuador, quite shocked by what happened, uh, the brazen assassination of Fernando Villavicencio uh, campaigning for the presidency in Ecuador, a brazen attack, brutal attack, the guy that shot him in, shot him in the head but then tossed a grenade, which fortunately didn't go off, and the police killed him, which, which uh, obviously makes it difficult to find out who the authors are. But the, the, the consensus seems to be that this has something to do with the proliferation of street gangs and the infiltration of Ecuador by drug cartels. Would would you agree with that assessment? Yeah. So I, you know, there's a kind of a short answer and a long answer to that. Um, and I would say that uh, yes, that's true. There's we've definitely witnessed a, an increase in violence over recent years um, that has to do with with, you know, the the changing and increasing presence of narco trafficking, but the, the role of it in Ecuador versus, for example, in Colombia, because, you know, 20, 30 years ago, um, Ecuador was um, more of a country where narco traffickers 
money laundered, but it, it wasn't a center of actual trafficking itself the way that it is now. Um, and so that combined with just the precarity of life, the pandemic, the out-migration, in-migration, um, a lot of things have contributed, I think, to the increase in kind of what everyone calls social violence there, which I guess in, in Spanish is a term that captures this proliferation of violence. And, and But what we're seeing now with this, um, this assassination and you know, the recent assassination of the mayor of Manta as well. And so, you know, this is a new trend. This is a, a trend of killing more highly visible people that I do think is, is linked to um, organized crime and, and narco-trafficking. Well, uh, Villa Vincenzo himself singled out the Mexico Sinaloa cartel. He also referred to the detained crime boss, Jose Adolfo Macias, uh, by his alias Fito. So is that possible that uh, he went too far? I mean, I've, I've seen some video clips of him campaigning against uh, the corruption in the country, particularly uh, what he calls the thieves that are raping the country. So he's a former journalist, is he not? I mean, I guess you have to mm-hmm. consider him a pretty brave individual, wouldn't would you? Yeah, definitely. I was just, just exactly what I was going to say. He 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 was very brave. He he's the kind of person who would not let anyone off the hook, regardless of their ideological stance or position. I mean, he you know he he was um, uh, he fought corruption wherever he saw it, and he named it, and he wasn't afraid to go against powerful political leaders. And um, I think he paid a price for it. And he was elected to Ecuador's National Assembly in in 2021, where he serves as the Commission for Oversight and Political Control, where apparently he took on the issue of investigating corruption. He was also married and had three children, um, which compounds the tragedy. What did you? What do you make of the of the outgoing president's uh, call, in a sense, uh, blaming it on the violence and uh, and I guess the the, the drug runners? But uh, he he wasn't Fernando Villavicencio wasn't leading in the polls, was he not? I mean, all the other candidates I understand have 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 uh, suspended their campaigns. But tell us about the outgoing leader, uh, President uh, Lasso. Well, you know, Lasso is um, more on the right. He definitely, yeah, has blamed narco-trafficking, organized crime, and the relationship between organized crime and delinquents um, on this tragedy. He, you know, got rid of the former... Constituent Assembly, and uh, which Mia uh, Vicencio was on, which I think is what propelled him to run for the presidency, if I'm not mistaken, um, at least in part. Um, and um, he, Lasso is also a controversial person. I mean, I, I'd say Ecuador, politically speaking, is, is pretty polarized right now um, in terms of the options um, between, you know, kind of right-wing leaders and then the, the leading opponent right now is related to uh, uh, former socialist president Rafael Correa and 
his citizen revolution. So she's, um, you know, right now projected as the number one um, opponent in the in the race. But Villa Vicencio was a critic of uh, the former president, right, Rafael Correa? Oh, yes, exactly. He. As I understand it, he, you know, he helped reveal the fact that Correa was kind of making back backroom deals with Brazilians on a on a Petro deal, and that led to, you know, some of the actions that were taken to to find Correa guilty of of uh, corrupt dealings. So he 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 talked a lot about the narco state. So he he seemed to have a lot of information about politicians' ties to narco-trafficking and organized crime. I think a lot of that has yet to be revealed, but he had a lot, he, you know, he dug deeper than most journalists, and at the very least, he spoke out loud about it more than other journalists. I mean, in that sense, I guess it's not surprising that he he was the one who was assassinated, but just the, the outright violence of it all is, is, I think, what's surprising, even to my... Ecuadorian colleagues and you know who study this this stuff they're they're just as surprised right now. But it sounds like Philip Asensio had a huge list of enemies, right? Uh, starting with the Sinaloa cartel, which are ruthless, the drug deal- dealers, uh, the cartels in the country, the street gangs that I assume. Uh, have have a relationship with the cartels, the former president Rafael Correa and his people, including the, the he's obviously made also made an enemy of uh, President Rafael Correa and and which one of the candidates belongs to Correa's former party and is running as a, as as his uh, surrogate, if you will. Yeah, so Luisa Gonzalez is is the person running um, that's you know aligned with uh, Correa and seen very much as someone um, working along the same party line. To my knowledge, she has. I mean, I could be wrong because it's changing by the minute. But when I checked just a couple hours ago, she hadn't announced that she was temporarily canceling her campaign and an acknowledgement of this assassination, but it's very possible that she might do so as well. Right. Three of the eight candidates have suspended their campaign, Jan Topic, Yaku Pejas, and Bolivar Amios. But in general, the the question is, a former journalist turned politician turned presidential candidate who was just assassinated, he seemed to have taken on just about everybody, right? Uh, the drug cartels, the political establishment, the former president, and and, and even the, the current president, Lasso, doesn't sound like he's they were colleagues or friends, right? That's right. He he did take on anyone and everyone that he felt was doing corrupt business or, or politics. So you're right, he didn't have many allies to speak of. And where is the United States in all of this, Amy? That's a good question. There's a lot that has been done at the regional level with the the uh, Organization of American States. Um, there's been discussion about strengthening bilateral cooperation with, with Colombia, with Peru to strengthen borders. But, um, uh, you know, and the U.S. has its base, military base in Manta. Um, but I, um, it's not really clear to me, you know, 
how strong the stance the U.S. government is taking in, in this regard, you know, to this to this ongoing violence, except to say that it's gotten worse and worse. And frankly, it's I really don't see an end in sight. I think it's it's going to keep escalating. All right. Well, apparently, Villavicencio fled to an indigenous territory inside Ecuador, and then he was later granted political asylum in Peru. Right. And he only, re- he only returned back to Ecuador in September of 2017 after Correa had left office. So, again, there's some pretty bad, bad blood there, so it's difficult to know whether it was the cartels, the gangs, or Correa's people that wanted this guy dead. I mean, I, you know, I, I agree with you that, that all of those groups didn't like Leo Vicencio. I, I didn't see that kind of violence by the Corvée administration that, that we see um, linked to narco-trafficking. Um, whether Corvée has been linked to narco-trafficking is, is questionable. That's something that I think um, we need to, you know, dig in, you know, dig into further to, to understand. But as I see it, you know, this kind of violence, I, I wouldn't immediately associate with, with uh, the Corvée administration, but rather with um, the narco-trafficking and the kind of increased, you know, organized crime. Well, I imagine uh, we'll see what happens to Correa's candidate, right? If she still is in the lead... Do you expect a kind of backlash against her in sympathy for the the martyred presidential candidate? Honestly, you know, I don't. <laughs> I I think that the people who are loyal to Correa and his people are, are going to continue to be loyal, you know. Um, I think the people who are opposed to them will continue to be opposed. Do I think this assassination will change that? Mm, I think that... I think things might stay the same in that regard. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.